today there are four uh, recognized major uh, established language, uh, language families of Africa. There's the Niger Kordofanian, and you'll see I give a few samples of languages that belong to those families, languages that you might have heard of. There'd be many others you wouldn't have. Uh, Niger Kordofanian, uh, Nilo Saharan, Afroasiatic, and Khoisan. So, four families, and nearly all of the um, well over a thousand languages spoken in the 49 continental countries of Africa today belong to one of those uh, families. Now, to say that languages belong uh, to a family is to say that, and we use this term, genetically related. And that means all the languages of the family descend from, they all evolved out of the, uh, a common, a single mother language, we call it a proto-language, and that language would have been spoken by a single community or a collection of closely related speech communities at some period uh, in the past. Now, just a note, the descent of languages is like the mitotic descent of single-celled organisms. A mother language, a proto-language, diverges into its daughter languages. It becomes its daughters. It doesn't go on existing alongside them. Uh, and you can see the, the, this sort of uh, little family tree or whatever model we might call it here. This model here shows initially the proto-language developing dialect differences. Then they'd be still mutually intelligible and that's sort of represented by the overlapping lines, the overlapping uh, ovals. And then as time goes on, the dialects become more different and they become eventually distinct separate daughter languages. And this is a kind of process that can repeat again many times and has repeated many times in history. The daughter, a daughter language itself may eventually become developed dialects and then split into languages. And as it diverges, it becomes, it, it leaves, it, was, it becomes therefore a proto-language and gives rise to other languages. Now, the existing language families of Africa, the four families that uh, account for nearly all of the African languages, does this mean that the four proto-languages of those families, uh, oh, sorry, another little point I need to bring out. All of those language families in Africa have relatively deep histories uh, as, as families go. The proto-language of each of these families was spoken no more recently than the close of the Pleistocene, probably no more recently than 13, 14, 15,000 years ago. Now, does that mean that the proto-languages of those four families were the only languages spoken in Africa uh, at the end, the close of the Pleistocene? Well, of course it doesn't. There would have been hundreds of other languages spoken uh, in Africa then, just as there are today. But over the long millennia since the end of the Pleistocene, uh, the speakers of those four families happened to have been the ones that mostly did the spreading out into new areas. And as they spread in new areas, sometimes faster, sometimes slower, they eventually spread over large parts and, and over uh, larger and larger parts of the continent. Now, as they gradually expanded into new territories, they incorporated eventually the people already living in those areas into their societies. And so as a result, the other languages that might have been spoken in the late Pleistocene in Africa 
eventually passed out of use. They became extinct. Well, perhaps not uh, every one of them. There have been suggestions in recent years of uh, four languages that might uh, go back uh, separately that stand outside the major families, uh, two of them in West Africa, one in Ethiopia. And it's also been uh, proposed by uh, quite a number of uh, scholars think that Hadza shouldn't be included in the Khoisan language family, which uh, I would put it into, uh, and that it should be also understood as another separate line of earlier linguistic descent in the continent. There is now uh, a particular feature of how languages evolve that allows us to extract historical information from them. And it works like this. Uh, changes take place over time in how people pronounce the words of their language. Uh, you, can, you are familiar with this just by listening to people speak different uh, dialects of English. But here's the key point. These sound changes follow regular sound change rules. They operate according to regular sound change laws. And we can formulate these rules, and then we can use these rules to reconstruct back in time a lot of the lesser, greater portions of the lexicon of the words that would have been used back in the proto-language of this particular family we're looking at. So let me give you an example. Uh, give you an example of a regular sound change involving Spanish and English. English and Spanish belong to the Indo-European language family. They are daughter languages, descendants of Proto-Indo-European, the mother language of the Indo-European family. Now, in English, the original consonant that we reconstruct as a Proto-Indo-European, we'll just say P here, um, regularly became F. Spanish, on the other hand, maintained the pronunciation of P down to the present. So what I'm going to do is give you an English word, and, and you'll see how these cognates go. Yeah, it's got a P, doesn't it? Okay. Well, we're looking at one sound correspondence, not all the other ones in the word. Now, we think obviously of pescado, as I hear people saying too, but think of pes, which is the more direct cognate. Pescado is the cut one. It comes from pescar, to fish. Another one you can get quickly, right? And the preposition for? Yeah, both, both para and por come from the same ancient root word as English for. They just came through a little bit different sound change rule history. Ah, uh, yeah, people got that. Poco, good. Don't necessarily think of that. Poco has a suffix added to it. It's the po part that's the same as the English word. A few, so you also have to be able to take words apart. Now, these are examples, just one consonant, P, and just in one position, the beginning of a word. If a P might have occurred in some other part of the word, you might have a different regular sound change for it. So you have to look at all those sorts of details. And there are regular sound change rules that explain the vowels, the difference of vowels, outcomes, and the other consonants in the words. Uh, it can become quite a, a complex and involved matter, as you might imagine. Uh, so not something we can go on looking at more today. But once we discover, once we work out the sound change rules, we can do as I mentioned before, we can begin to reconstruct something, of, of, of an approximation of what the original word would have been and what its meaning would have been in the proto-language. Here's how we reconstruct the root words that lie behind, the proto-Indo-European words that lie behind those 
cognate words that we have listed here on our, on our scene, on our site here. It's not just words like this, though, that we can reconstruct. We can reconstruct words that tell us about the culture, about the ideas, about what people knew and believed. Uh, just to choose one example, uh, in each of the African language families, we can reconstruct words to their proto-languages that show that the people who spoke them knew of bows and arrows. And here are the materials from the four families. Uh, you might have a couple of consonants that look strange to you down in the Khoisan. Those are click consonants I'll have something to say about later. And you notice actually Khoisan, another piece of information, we have a word, we can reconstruct a word for arrow poison. So we know something about their technology, a particular thing that's likely not to show up in the archaeology. So reconstructing ancient lexicon can allow us oftentimes to reconstruct things in culture that maybe won't ever turn up in the material record. It adds to our knowledge. It's an additional independent source of information. But the, sort, the information from these four families each takes us back only uh, to the late Pleistocene. In the case of Khoisan, maybe a little older, maybe uh, 20,000 years ago, a little bit earlier than the other two, the other three families, I mean. But that still leaves us the question, how do we connect up back the previous 30 to 40,000 years, back to, uh, say, the period when humankind began to move out from Africa across the rest of the world? Well, the four proposed remnant languages from the earlier periods it's too bad they're so few. They might eventually give us a little information, but so far they haven't been uh, properly studied in that way. But there is another kind of evidence that's come out recently that's informative on the early evolution of human language. Uh, a recent systematic uh, study has shown that the dispersal of humans out of Africa was accompanied by uh, uh, a recurrent trend toward the simplification of the consonant systems. Uh, there are individual exceptions, languages which over the history developed a little more complicated consonant systems. But overall the pattern has been that the farther human beings moved from Africa, the less complex, uh, the simpler their consonant systems tended to become. Uh, the most complicated consonant systems left today are in Africa. Uh, the simplest system of all, with just eight consonants, is in the Hawaiian language, spoken, notice, at the far end of, the farthest end of human movement into the Pacific, as far as you could get from Africa. So even individual cases kind of back up that, that sort of insight that this particular article discovered, the writer of this article. Now, there is a reason why history should tend this way in consonant systems. First off, some kinds of consonants are easily recreated by new sound changes in a language. Uh, so you might get, have a consonant, a particular consonant, or a set of consonants that might get lost from the language in the course of its history. But centuries later, there might be new sound changes that would re recreate those sounds. And I'll give you an example here, recreating a lost consonant. Uh, by looking at the Germanic branch of Indo-European, English is a Germanic language. In Proto-Germanic, the ancestral just the Germanic languages, the original, what we reconstruct as K in Indo-European, became H. So it looks like K is gone. But around, through somewhere in the same broad period of time, another 
sound change law operated that created new Ks in Proto-Germanic by changing earlier Indo-European G into K. So you have one sound change that might eliminate a particular consonant, but another sound change rule later on coming along and recreating, bringing that back into the language. But on the other hand, there are consonant systems, quite a few subsystems of consonants, categories of consonants, which once they are lost do not get replaced or may be very hard to ever be recreated again. And uh, so one good instance uh, is the pharyngeal consonants. And so I'll give you a couple of examples from Arabic, which is a language very much characterized by pharyngeals. Uh, I'm going to use these two names which you would recognize, Ahmed and Muhammad. So Ahmed and Muhammad. Do you hear that unusual H, at least to us, unusual if we're just English speakers, uh, H-like sound? It's not Ahmed, it's Ahmed. Well, this sound is pharyngeal because the locus of making the sound is at the top part of the throat, the pharynx. And so that's why the adjective uh, pharyngeal. Among consonant sub sort of categories of consonants in the world, this pharyngeal sounds are one of the categories that once they're lost, tend not to ever be recreated by later sound changes. They're gone from the system. So what happened as people moved outward from Africa is that if they did go through a sound change history where they dropped one of these systems, these subsystems that couldn't be recreated again, then that was never going to come back. And as people moved farther from Africa, that process apparently uh, was repeated. And so the result was that the farther you got from Africa, the fewer of these kinds of unusual, what we would think in English as unusual consonant subsystems disappeared, and the, and the simpler the consonant systems became. Now, there is a particular category I want to bring our attention around now, too, of consonants that once lost uh, do not seem to be able to be recreated. And that is the click consonants. And the click consonants are especially notable. They're notable because they bring, one, they bring you around my concluding point here, but they're notable because their history may have something to tell us about the fundamental relationships among all the language families of the world. You've been to the zoo, perhaps. I mean, San Diego is certainly a good place to do this. And you might have encountered uh, the antelope called the kudu. Kudu. There, I made it much better that time. Kudu. Well, you know it better as the kudu, of course. And you may have read to children a book about the blue mu, spelled G-N-U, of course. This is the mu. That's one of those click consonants. These uh, click consonants uh, are uh, the, these words got into English because they came from a Khoisan language. The Khoisan family has cliques, and uh, these words came from them. Now, as regular consonants, as regular sounds in words, uh, cliques are almost entirely restricted today to the Khoisan family as parts of real words. They do occur in a few Southern African languages and in one East African language that are not Khoisan because these languages borrowed words with the cliques, and they kept the cliques in the words when they borrowed them. They adopted them from Khoisan languages. People, uh, so virtually outside of Khoisan, these sounds are not found anywhere else in the world, not as parts of regular words. We do in English do, you know, a 
disapproval sound, that's one of those click consonants. Or you might know for, at least in my folk imagery, that's to get a horse to move faster or something. Okay, those are just the consonant all by itself, not put in a word. So yeah, we can do those. But try putting, like I said, with kudu and put it in a word. Much harder, you gotta practice a long time. But that's just because we're not used to it. Children who grow up, European ancestry, whatever, if they grow up in that environment, they learn the clicks just as quickly as any of the local children do. Well, uh, if we look back at what we saw with this article, Quentin uh, Atkinson, that I gave a quick reference to earlier, the implication of his findings are that the most complicated consonant systems in human history would have been far back in time. They would have been an ancestral language. And click consonants, because of the unidirectionality of consonant, of consonant change, should have been in the consonant system of the earliest human language. But why? Only in the Khoisan language family today. Well, uh, late Russian linguist uh, Sergei Starostin and I came up uh, separately and then talked about it with each other with a conclusion about why this might be. And our conclusion, and this is wrapping up what I have to say, was that our proposal, not a conclusion, but our hypothesis, our proposal, was that the languages of the world today belong to just two deep, deep time macro families. Khoisan, uh, what we, what we pro proposed is that Khoisan is the last remaining representative today of one of those macro families. This was the macro family that spread across the southern parts of Africa. Its language retained clicks. The rest of the languages of the world belonged to another big macro family, all the rest of the languages. This, the ancestral language of this family lost clicks. That gave us a parsimonious explanation, one period in history with a loss of clicks. And here's a representation for you of a family tree. You see a south, sort of southern half of Africa set of language families, all extinct except for Khoisan at the left. A north uh, distributed African family, all the rest of the world, the other three African families, and all the rest of the languages of the world belonging to that family. <laughs> well, these are our closing thought. There are some significant parallels here because the division of human languages, if, they, if this hypothesis turns out to be correct, we have uh, a southern half of Africa with uh, basic big division within humankind, and then the rest of Af humankind from northern Africa outward. This looks a bit like some recent ideas of how, where the deepest lines of genetic connection within the human uh, genetic ancestry are located, the same kind of division. And so I leave you with that thought. Thank you.